summer break had become uncharacteristically long and dull. It was too hot to be out playing sports, too boring to be stuck at home all day. And best friends, Alex and Julian, had already had their gaming systems taken away due to spending too much time glued to the TV. Going to the movies was too expensive, and the rest of their friends had all gotten out of town to vacation at more exotic locales, or at least cooler ones. They had spent the first month of their vacation fixing their bikes, but it wasn't cool enough until sunset to actually ride them anywhere. Their sympathetic parents had extended their curfews to allow them to be out after dark to get the most out of the cooler weather. They lived in a small rural town, few houses separated by large undeveloped plots of land. There was really only so much trouble the teens could get into. So, as the blazing copper sun dropped below the horizon and the land became washed with light purple skies, the pair would jump onto their bikes and ride eagerly from one abandoned barn to the next ruined old feed shed, looking for forgotten treasures, the silver moon lighting their path. One night, they stumbled upon an old farmhouse, a dilapidated structure that looked as though the ground itself was swallowing it up. Most of the roof was gone, all the windows had been smashed to smithereens, and the front door ominously swung back and forth, inviting the boys in with a hauntingly menacing welcome. Neither of the boys were brave enough to go inside, but instead raced home to tell Alex's older sister what they'd found. Oh, you found the old Gilbert farmhouse. Alex's older sister, Sarah, gleamed as she painted her long fingernails a glossy cherry red. Terribly tragic story, that one. Sarah said in between long brush strokes. What happened? Asked the curious boys, both of the boys now enthralled by the mystery. I wish I could tell you, little brother, but it's much too scary for little boys. Fine then, don't tell us, Alex said with a dismissive wave of his baseball cap, knowing his dramatic sister couldn't resist a captive audience. All right, I guess I'll tell you but only if you promise not to tell a mom and dad. Back in the 1930s, old farmer Gilbert lost all of his crops to the black blizzard. He refused to leave his home. So he, his wife, and three children were all left to endure the relentlessly dusty days of the Dust Bowl. His wife ended up dying of the brown plague. And one by one, old Gilbert watched his children die of starvation. Finally, after months of loss, grief, and loneliness, old Gilbert lost his sanity. And in a way to pay penance for the harm he had subjected upon his family, he was compelled to cut off pieces of his body until he finally died from the loss of blood. When the grim scene was uncovered, the farm was strewn with disarticulated toes, feet, a hand, and a sawed-off leg. That's the one that did him in. He was found near the back door, as though he was crawling away for help. The house was left to rot. But if you go in there at night and ask old Gilbert why he did it, he always responds, 
They made me. Who? Who made him? The boys asked eagerly. I don't know. Maybe his wife or children as an act of revenge. Or maybe it was the devil himself. You'd have to ask him yourself. And with that, the boys now had the most exciting plan for the summer. On a full moon night, the pair returned to the shell of a home. Julian had been studying and had devised a plan that he knew would connect them with old Gilbert. You want me to sit here and do what? Alex asked. I don't want you to do anything. Just sit there and listen. Yeah, but Julian, it's not just sitting there and listening, is it? Because you also want me blindfolded and listening to a spirit box. Yeah, well, that's how it works, man. You'll be the receiver, the one receiving the messages. And I'll be the sender, the one asking the questions. You won't be able to see me or hear me. You'll just hear the responses generated by the box. The spirit box in question being Julian's dad's old radio. Yeah, I don't know about this. It sounds freaky and like the start to a bad Halloween prank. It's not a prank, Julian reassured. It's called the Estes Method. Some paranormal investigators from the Stanley Hotel named it after Estes Park. The Stanley Hotel? Like the Shining, the Stanley Hotel? Yeah, that's it, exactly. Besides, this way we can find out what really happened to Gilbert in his own words. Reluctantly, Alex put on the blindfold, covered his ears with the large cushioned headphones as Julian started the static. And don't forget, Julian said as he lifted a headphone ear to caution Alex, you have to yell out whatever words you hear. And with that, Julian began. Whose house is this? My house, said a very frightened Alex. Old Farmer Gilbert? Julian asked excitedly. Silence filled the room. Mrs. Gilbert? The Gilbert children? Still no response. Whose house is this? Mine, Alex responded with a harsh certainty. And who are you? I am... It's Becca. For the past three years, the West London Witch team have been dedicated to bringing you the best supernatural stories at the highest studio quality. And by team, I mean me and my buddy Danny. 
We do this work totally for free because we love it. We're proud of our content and appreciate the wonderful interactions we get to have with storytellers and listeners just like yourself. If you're enjoying the West London Witch, maybe consider joining our Patreon. It's a way to further engage with us and show your support for two creatives. If you're in a position to spare enough each month for us to grab a cup of coffee in between edits or add to the piggy bank for a new microphone, we would love to see you in our Patreon community. But I know times are tough. So if you're not in a position to join Patreon right now, that's okay. We aren't going anywhere. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash the West London Witch. For as little as one pound, one dollar, one euro a month, you can gain full access to our coven, a space where we share behind-the-scenes stories, dive deeper into each episode, answer your questions, and have special little treats to thank you for sharing your love and kindness with your favorite little witch. Hello, and welcome to episode 44 of The West London Witch a podcast where we share stories about those moments when we find ourselves very much not alone. Today, we are flocking down to South Florida to meet Eric, team leader of War Party Paranormal, a group dedicated to connecting history to hauntings. Today, Eric is going to share with us his most active paranormal investigation to date. Prepare yourself for a paranormal tempest as we head to hurricane territory. I'm Rebecca Strazina, and this is The West London Witch, Episode 44, The Perfect Paranormal Storm. This location is down in Miami, Florida. Um, It's called the Gold Coast Railroad Museum. It's one of the most haunted places in Miami. And what makes it haunted was originally back in the 1940s, it was a naval air station. And they had three huge hangars that stored six blimps. So if you can imagine how big an hot air blimp is, um, they're humongous. So basically they used those blimps to patrol the Florida coast during World War II to look out for Nazi submarines. Um, so they were like, played a very strategic role in World War II. But in the 1950s, a hurricane came by. One of the hangars got damaged and one of the blimps caught on fire. And then they all caught on fire and all three hangars blew up. After the terrible destruction of the hangar, the county purchased the land and created the Gold Coast Railway Museum, a museum committed to preserving and showcasing historic cars, locomotives, and rail equipment. Turning the site into a railway museum seemed like a natural fit, as the land was once a U.S. Naval Air Station with over three miles of railway tracks on the old base, which are still in operation to this day for guests of the museum to enjoy. Rebecca, since you're in London, you'll appreciate this. They have the Ferdinand Magellan. Um, It's one of the presidential cars. And Winston Churchill wrote in that card. And Ronald Reagan, Truman, Roosevelt. So, and that's not the only car. There's a segregation car. 
There's an army medical card. There's a double decker California Zephyr that like traveled all over the West Coast. The museum is jam packed with passenger rail cars, classic cars, steam locomotives, and even a rocket. But of course, all of these items have been sourced from all over the world and each have their own unique histories. The odd thing about this location and what makes it haunted is some of that parent, some of that energy from that explosion from the naval air base still remains there. And not only that, it's just like all the individual historical cars, they all have activity and their own different personalities. Eric has investigated the museum over a dozen times. But one night during a tropical disturbance, the museum came alive and its haunts were on full display. One night we were investigating with our team and we were there. Um, I believe we got there like around 6 p.m. in the evening time um, to set up and everything. And we stayed there all the way till like sunrise. And during that time, we were experiencing a little tropical depression. So they say changes in the atmosphere can stir up paranormal activity, and it can, especially when the barometric pressure is going crazy. So it was a perfect night to experience it, some amazing paranormal activity, things I can't explain that happened. And it started right off the bat. So where one of the, the blimp hangers were, where they store the cars in that location, they still have remnants of the buildings, like in brick. And basically they use one of the buildings as a hobby room. They have like all these miniature trains that are going around and everything. So next to it is the maintenance room, which is real cre creepy. It's just like a nasty looking place. Um, it's real dirty. And I don't know, it was like almost sunset. So there's still a little bit light. and I'm by like this bathroom area and I'm filming and I'm with like three other people on my team. And all of a sudden I see a full blown shadow figure, like walk, even like blocked, like the window, like crossing it and going to the other side, arms and legs and everything. I'm like, what the? Now, Eric says he doesn't get scared. But he also said that upon seeing this black figure pass silently by, every hair on his body stood to attention. He took after it to see what or who it was. Maybe there was a plausible explanation. There was nothing there. So I turn around, come back, getting ready to tell my story to the other three people that there with me. And we had this lady, Erin, she's actually an author. I saw that shadow, I walked back and Aaron was there and she was like, someone just took their finger and just ran it along my cheek going all the way down. And I'm like, what? She's like, yeah, like right here. And she's showing me and I'm like, let me see something. And I'm looking at the side of her cheek and you know how like women wear blush? You can see like a mark where like someone ran their finger and that and ran like a line down her cheek where the blush is missing. The investigation had started with a bang. And since that experience was so clear and visceral, the team decided to focus their energy on that location to begin with. So we went back, we set, we set up cameras and we started doing an EVP session. And what an EVP, what an EVP is, is electronic voice phenomenon. Um, an EVP session is the way we communicate with the spirits. Um, we use a recorder. 
where we're asking and recorders can hear at a higher frequency than your than the human ear can hear so it picks up things that you won't be able to hear with your own ears so we're asking questions and my other partner joe gets poked so he asked the question did someone poke poke me did someone touch me and we got a response like i poked you which was like clear as day and then in aaron's with us and we're going through our evp session and all of a sudden aaron says that she felt someone take their hands and run it put them on her knee and run it up her legs going all the way up to her thigh the team were officially spooked they decided to give that space a rest set some paranormal boundaries and move to another location they left equipment running and monitoring the room so they could keep an eye on the space from afar so we we walked out and we start investigating uh, we go to the army car and I'm with um, Mike, our tech guy, and we're investigating the army car. And in the army car, uh, people have experienced a lot of things there. They've seen apparitions of a little girl, which, yeah, I have too. People's heard like someone whisper in their ears sometimes. Um, we've gotten communication with a soldier there, um, possibly injured in the army medical car. So I go towards the back and I just like feel this like really heavy feeling as a seasoned investigator, Eric knows this feeling and decides to capitalize on the moment. He begins to set up equipment when all of a sudden he hears a loud knock coming from outside the train car. Eric calls out, If anyone is there, please knock again. Once more, a loud, distinct knock shatters the silence. Eric and Mike know that now is the moment to do an EVP session. We were doing an EVP session and we were introducing ourselves and usually with well, the way I start off is I'll say my name is Eric and then this is my friend Mike can you tell me which and I start messing around can you tell me which person you like the best so after we played back the recording the response we got was Michael we were like holy shit I mean it said your name and it was like clear as day and Mike was like freaking out and I'm like oh I want more <laughs> We go back to the maintenance room where I saw the shadow figure and people were getting touched to pick up the cameras to see if we got anything. So we go back to this this spot and the hangar was the hangar's open air, like you know, the the front end is open and then the rear end's open. It's just like pretty much a roof over it. So this tropical disturbance is starting to pick up now, and then all of a sudden, like the wind is like going sideways. Like through the hangar. The wind is so strong and violent, the crew grab their gear and bolt into the museum to keep safe and review any evidence they may have collected on their cameras. And the one thing I got that was really weird is I kept on hearing footsteps, like someone walking there. And these are night vision cameras, and we have um, infrared lights, so it sees in the dark pretty much. And there's nobody in there. We're, we're hearing it, and then on the floor where we have one of the other cameras, we have what's called a tripwire, and it's almost think of it like a, like, almost like the tree lights that you put on your Christmas tree, like a long string of lights, but the bulbs are a lot bigger, and they change different colors, and they sense EMF. If someone's if someone has EMF on them and they're walking down the line of these lights, they'll start you know lighting up, 
individually as they go. So we're hearing the footsteps and that thing is going off. The team decides that this was the perfect time to do one of their more unconventional investigative tactics, a method they call the Delco experiment, named after one of their investigators. It's a mix of the Estes experiment and the Gainesfield method. The Gainesfield method is a test that was created by German psychologist Wolfgang Metzger, who proffered the idea that if a subject was set before a homogenous visual field, i.e. staring nonstop at a blank white wall, they could be overcome with hallucinations due to sensory deprivation. The word Gainesfield is German for complete field. This theory was further pushed to scientific limits by Charles Honerton and William G. Brood, a pair of American parapsychologists who thought that by utilizing the Gainesfield method, they could prove the existence of ESP, extrasensory perception. But the modern form of the Gainesfield experiment you see today is complements of James J. Gibson, who cut a ping pong ball in half taped them over the subject's eye so all they could see was a soft ambient glow, creating a perfectly homogenous field of vision. Paranormal investigators, especially psychics and mediums, use this method to see if they can reach a level of sensory deprivation that will help activate their sixth sense, and therefore they will be more perceptive to spirits. The combination of the homogenous field, white noise, and a soft red light have been known to be the perfect recipe for getting one into a state ripe for paranormal connection. The Delco experiment is a marriage of the Estes and Gainesfield methods, using the spirit box from the Estes and the visual aspects of the Gainesfield. We have Joe, who's one of our sensitives. And he, that probably affects him the most. And we were in the maintenance room and we started communicating. We believe that that room back when it was a naval base was officer's headquarters. And we believe an officer was there. We were just asking questions and Joe was just like blurting out things that would relate to that. Um, Saying captain, lieutenant. We had Aaron with us. They didn't like females there. They said they said something in regards to that. And then Joe was like seeing visuals, like like things that related to the explosion. Like, and you know, it's ironic. The accident that happened when all these blimps blew up was from a hurricane. And here we're going through a little tropical dispress, um, disturbance. I mean, it wasn't a hurricane. It wasn't a tropical sp- storm, but there were winds that were coming and going because there were rain bands. I think it just fueled like energy and just amped things up to the point where we were like experiencing all these kinds of paranormal activity and they're all relating. Because what we're looking for, our ultimate goal is to get evidence that correlate to the history of the place. And that's what we were getting. And we were getting communication with an angry soldier. He didn't want us there. He didn't want women there. And he was very abdomen about that. Um, I mean, earlier, maybe he was showing himself to us, like, and then maybe he, like, poked Joe and told him he poked him. He didn't want us to be there. The night was coming to a paranormal crescendo, but the historical haunts were not over yet. So we continued because, you know, the place is huge and we want to, like, spread out and investigate other areas. So we were, Mike and I were walking along 
the the side of the the rail the rails where they had all the rail cars on the outside of the hangars all lined up, and we saw a shadow figure that looked like almost like a bear, like coming out from under underneath the cars, and it sort of freaked me out because I thought it was an animal. Terrified and startled, Eric directed his thermal imaging camera at the beast. You could see something in the shape of a bear, but it couldn't have been a bear because it would have shown like an orange-white color from the, the heat emanating from his body. But it was the opposite. It was like black, purple, dark, and it was coming out of the rail car and it morphed into like something that looked like a bear with like legs and you can see it walk away and then it like disappeared. You know, the weird thing about the, or also where the Gold Coast Railroad Museum is and like a lot of our other locations, actually pretty much all of Miami um, and South Florida in general is there's a lot of old native American history that dates back like thousands of years ago. And it's weird because every now and then we get like things that are like related to the Native Americans, like Tecesta Indians and Seminoles that were there. So I think maybe, I don't know, I think maybe when I see something that looks like an animal in that area, I always think that maybe it might be something more like, like a Native American spirit, maybe. The museum is also located next to Zoo Miami. So maybe there is a connection there as well. But the fact that the creature morphed into something more humanoid definitely lends itself to Native American origins. And then when we're seeing people like inside the rail cars, like walk and you see them going through the window. So that was pretty freaky. It was quite a night, but the finish, the finish the night off was, you know, we were like packing and a group of us were like on one side of the hangar. And then I was on the other side because that's where the bathroom was and I want to go to the bathroom before I drove home and I walk out and I hear a little boy screaming. I'm like, what the fuck? The scream was so loud, so distinctive and so childlike that Eric almost thought it wasn't possible. Perhaps he had heard something else or was mistaken by the sound altogether. But when he made it back to his ashen team, he was greeted with a frightened, did you hear that scream? That was probably the most active night I've ever experienced in my years of um, paranormal investigation. And when I ever, whenever I do an investigation, I'm just like trying to look for something that's going to be better than that. So in a way, I'm like sort of a little bit spoiled. And I think it all has to do with this tropical dis- disturbance that we had that night. Storms produce a lot of natural supercharged energy. Spirits are believed to need energy to communicate and connect. So it makes perfect sense that during a storm, activity would increase and be enhanced. And when you combine that with the history of the tragic storm that destroyed the naval base, it's no surprise that the Gold Coast Railway Museum would be a particularly sensitive location. If you'd like to learn more about Eric and War Party Paranormal, check out their website www.warpartyparanormal.com Do you have a spooky story you'd like to share? I'd love to hear it. Drop me an email at thewestlondonwitch at gmail.com 
or find us on Instagram and Facebook at The West London Witch. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. And come and follow us for additional content on Instagram and Facebook. Until next time, Merry Meet, Merry Part, and Merry Meet again. The West London Witch is created by me, Rebecca Strazina. Our sound designer and production magician is the incredible Danny Cross. Our theme music was bespokely written and performed by the wickedly talented Kyle Hall. Our cover art is the beautiful collaboration between Lizzie Wilson and Jake Bowser. Special thanks to Miss Sinead Bowers, our quality control and biggest cheerleader. And thank you to you, all of our listeners all over the world. These are your stories. Thank you for sharing them with us.